You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 3rd, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. You know what happened 50 years ago tonight? Something to do with uh, Sputnik, right? Yes, yes, Sputnik launched into space by the Soviet Union. Good call, Steve. Officially beginning the uh, the space race. The space race, and it actually sparked an increase in interest in this country in science education that led plausibly to a lot of the science and technological innovations that came to fruition in later decades. So do you guys each remember where you were when Sputnik was launched? Yeah, I was a, uh, I think I was still in the vast deference at that time. Ew. <laughs> I want to think about your dad's vast I was deference. spending half the time with my mom, half the time with my dad in those <laughs> days. So, Jay, um, your blog this week was about your your favorite actor, Tommy Boy. Oh, Tom Cruise. I don't even have to, at this point, say what the, what the topic is. All I have to say is, God, don't we want it to be true? <laughs> Please let him be building a bunker to hide from Xenu. <laughs> so those are the news reports. Uh, unfortunately, for Jay's desires, this story was was broke by Star Magazine, uh, with hardly a reputable source. Tom Cruise's people are denying it, that there's any truth to it whatsoever. We haven't really yeah, seen Yeah, but obviously it. they're going to deny it. Otherwise, Zeno will know where to find them. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, But it is a story of dubious uh, sourcing and no corroboration. So, But it, it, it does tell you a couple of things, You know, some of which you pointed out in your blog, Jay, that first of all, nothing is, is too ridiculous to be propagated through the media. What I found about this article was I think we're at the point with the media where it, th- this illustrates very, very intensely how the media will cover anything and or make up anything to, mm. to get coverage. It's pretty certain. I doubt this story's true. I doubt mm. it very much. I really don't think he'd spend his money on something like that. And I don't think the religion is telling people that Xenu is going to be here any day now because it just doesn't, doesn't seem to me, to be what's happening. I think what, yeah, and you know what? If Zeno de- Zenu decided to drop by for a visit, I doubt a hole in the ground is going to save anybody. Yeah, that's true. For, for those of you who may not know, Zenu is the alleged galactic overlord in the Scientology, you know, science fiction religion, who banished the people who were the aliens who were, who were rebelling against him to the Earth, and then blew them up in a volcano, and now their spirits. Are you know possess people and cause all psychiatric disorders? That's, yeah. that's the See, nutshell. That's the nutshell. Hasn't version. Tom hasn't Tom uh, made it past that stage? So like he shouldn't have anything to fear from Zeno, right? Yeah, he's. I clear. don't know if you ever get. You know, the clear is from the Thetans, though. That's from the spirits. I don't know that that protects you in any way from Zeno if he physically decides to visit the Earth with with some kind of attack fleet and take over the Earth. But get, getting back to the whole the whole media thing. It does illustrate that the media, you know, we've known this for a long time now. I mean, I remember when the National Enquirer was a new a new uh, paper, and I remember thinking about how trashy it was. Even when I was a kid, I remember thinking, wow, this, this thing is so full of it. But it seems like there's more of them now than there are good newspapers. Like, there's more 
coverage on Hollywood than there is good magazines. Good magazines are actually dying off. Yeah. I think the other thing that this is illustrative of is that Tom Cruise now has a reputation as a crazy. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see, you know, any rumors or stories or or whatever that reinforce that reputation, the media are going to eat up and they're and they're going to propagate. And and that in fact reminds me of an observation that Christopher Hitchens made on this podcast. Where we were interviewing him that that journalists, you know, who do, who are not doing their job, judge people's actions by their reputations rather than their reputations by their actions. So here now, Tom Cruise has a reputation as a crazy. So we're going to give you a bunch of news illustrating Tom that Tom Cruise is crazy. It, it, it reminds me of the uh, Michael Jackson. You know, era when he was the, the crazy in the news, and and journalists were scrambling for any story about how crazy he is. You know, not to get too off track, but I want to say this before one of our listeners writes in, Jay, you don't remember when the National Enquirer just came out because it's been around since the twenties. Oh, it has. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> false I just memory. To say it, false memory syndrome. Said, wow, the fa- there Unless it is. You really do remember Sputnik? I, I thought I was just joking about that. Uh, maybe, right. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe my memory is just of going to the supermarket with my mother and noticing it for the first time. Yeah. That the headline. And you assumed it, 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 it just came out. Yeah. Right. Okay. See that? There's science in action right there. Thanks, Rebecca. So is it, fa- is it fair to say we can anticipate maybe in a month or two there's going to be some sort of similar, just totally ridiculous story surrounding Tom Cruise that's going to come out just to keep up circulation of the Daily Perhaps. Mail? Or we'll see. That would else. certainly be the pattern. Star yeah, magazine. That. The next news item, if we could get lower on the dumb scale from from where we started, oh, yeah. oh boy, the the View has a new panelist, oh, Sherry Shepard, and she, she is a gem. She, she is a right gem. In. You have to love her. She is a creationist. She's a comedian. You know, I think she was rather obscure prior to her stint on the View. I don't watch The View, but I saw this uh, this clip on YouTube, and we have the link to it, and you could watch it on YouTube. Uh, and I don't know what the background was, but Whoopi Goldberg, who's also on The View, was uh, asking Sherry Shepard about you know why she's a creationist, why does she believe, why does she not believe in evolution? And Whoopi decided to ask her a question. I suppose it was designed to expose Shepard's scientific literacy. And Whoopi asked her, do you believe that the world is flat? And Sherry said, is the world flat? I don't know. I've never thought about it. She'd never thought about it. This chick does not know if the world is flat or round. Or she claims, or that's what she claims. Yeah, let, let's let's clarify that the next day she did say that she was caught off guard because she wasn't used to having her religious beliefs called into question like that and in the heat of the moment she blurted out that she didn't know whether or not the world was flat or that she'd never thought about it before that she had never thought about it Uh, but she clarified that she actually does know that the world is Round. Yeah, well, she thought um, about it since the day before. I'm sure, so mm-hmm. she made up. I gotta mind. say, I gotta say, I, I don't buy it. Having and just watch it and decide for yourself. She repeats the questions, the question three times. Yeah, she had she had a, a full you know minute or so to to discuss this back and forth. Yeah, I don't think that she did not seem flustered or caught off guard, uh, and I, I she knew what the question was. I, I don't buy her backpedaling, to be honest with you. But, you know, you watch it and decide for yourself. Steve, do you think that she actually, at the time, 
didn't know, or was she claiming that she didn't know for religious purposes? Uh, that I don't know. I mean, I don't know why she would. What, what religious? Impl- Maybe she thought she was being baited by Whoopi, and I don't know. I, I have no idea. But she did not. She did not feel comfortable saying that she didn't. That she knew that the Earth was not flat. That it was round. She didn't say it. I, I feel like the really insulting thing is that she her excuse for her scientific yeah. illiteracy was. Uh, I don't know. I'm too busy thinking about how to feed my son. Yeah, her kids. Uh, and it's like, you know, no, what? <laughs> oh, you poor thing. You're so busy with your family that, you know. <laughs> okay, everybody else is feeding their kids, and you miss that the earth is round? Right. <laughs> oh, well, I, think she, I actually think she was being sincere, that she really hadn't thought about it any time before. Whatever, whatever science she might have learned in elementary school or whatever, she, apparently none of it took... And she moved on to, you know, other things like watching daytime television or something. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible to me that somebody's, you know, can be living their life and passing through this world with such a different, you know, outlook and different thought processes that they can get to an adult and, and not have even considered the basic structure of the world that they're living in. Just to me, that's, that's almost stunning. I also, it's interesting, I, I bet you there's a backstory to this. Now, if I were going to, to ask a creationist a question in order to expose their scientific illiteracy, I would, it would not even occur to me to ask them if their Earth is flat. Because I would never even consider that they wouldn't know that. Yeah. But Whoopi asked that question, so either she got lucky or she knew that, that she was hitting pay dirt with that mm. question. I think she got lucky. You think so? Um, yeah. Yeah, don't yeah. give Whoopi but, too um, much credit. It, it, was, <laughs> it was an off-the-cuff remark. Yeah. Oh, um, God, it was incredible. But the thing is, you know, even if she does, she, she's gone back and says, she, yes, she knows that the world is round. Um, but uh, she, she still hasn't come out and said that evolution happened. No. <laughs> she's, she still stands by the fact that she's a creationist. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Uh, it's pretty pathetic. I, I just imagined after I watched that video for like the 10th time on YouTube with my jaw dropping every time because it just, it's just a, it's a heart stopper. When you, when you hear her say it, 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 it strikes me in such a bad way. Like I, I really, it's, it's, a, it's like watching a train wreck for real. The thing I was thinking of is, okay, she, the show ends, you know, we'll wrap it up, everyone, okay, and then she's like, goes over and like grabs a sandwich or three, and then she's like, uh, I better like call my friend and, and like find out if that was bad, and she calls her friend up and like, is the world round? Like, did she have to actually ask somebody, is the world round? Did she have to ask her I'm kids? I'm thinking she walked past an old planet Hollywood and noticed for the first time the, the logo. Right. Suddenly <laughs> Evan, how could you not know? Honestly, what what I think it is is she thought Whoopi Goldberg was trying to trap her in something, and to avoid getting involved in it, she said she hadn't thought of it. Possibly. That only rescues her a little bit, though. You know that she wouldn't be willing to even grant as a premise that the world is round. Oh, she's an idiot. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I'm just saying that that's why I think she said yeah. that. Perhaps. The next news item is just a quick follow-up from a story we talked about last week. We talked about the 15-year-old boy who climbed inside the wheel well of a, of a jetliner and was, uh, he flew for two hours inside the wheel well, outside the, the, the plane, and landed, collapsed on the tarmac, was taken to the hospital. And we were speculating about whether or not the story was actually true, and we concluded it, was, it could be true, but that it was right on the, the edge of plausibility. Um, you know, given the environment that he would have had to fly through. Well, I've been tracking this for the last week, you know, just to provide some follow-up. And the story 
seems to check out, that now there are more details coming in, again, from multiple news sources, not, not just from a single news source. The boy was moved from a Moscow hospital to a hospital in his hometown, and there are you know, details coming in about the state of his medical condition. He's stable. There was concerns about whether or not his hands would have to be amputated. Now it looks like maybe just the tips of his fingers and his hands will not have to be amputated. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. And no retractions. So... It's playing out like a real news story. We've also had some feedback um, by email and on the forum. Uh, in fact, a couple of different flight surgeons emailed us to say that they thought it too was at sort of the, 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 the edge of physiological plausibility, but not impossible. I also found from my, just my, my web surfing that there have been a number of documented cases of people stowing away in the wheel well of jets, when most of them resulting in death, uh, although there were a couple of documented cases of, of people surviving. And it seems to be, uh, the, the, the key factor seems to be the duration of, uh, of the flight, the amount of time. Two hours is probably right at the limit. Three, four hours, you're probably going to be dead. Right. But so he was young enough, you know, healthy enough. Some, some people speculated he might have been somewhat acclimated to the cold coming from the Urals. I don't know if that's an important factor. And the cold, of course, would enable him to survive longer with the oxygen deprivation that he would have at that altitude. So not physiologically impossible, and just, uh, I think he just barely skated by with his life in that situation, and, and he got lucky. And, and it isn't, in fact, the first case. So, good. Um, good judgment at this time is that the story was uh, seems to be real. But if, if if that changes, if that information changes, we'll let you know. The uh, the next news item comes from the uh, the science blog Neurotopia, and we were pointed towards this. This the hit. Here's a great video on there that we can, we'll link to it. Occasionally, we have spoken about martial arts, spiritualism, and pseudoscience. Um, some Eastern martial arts traditions include the the concept that uh, there is chi, this life energy, or there's some you know mystical, magical powers that you know those who advance in skill in the martial arts not only develop physical skill but could actually develop real magical powers, the kind of things that you would see on a kung fu movie, you know, where people define gravity and, you know, affecting people without ever touching them, you know, those kind of cool martial arts movie type of stuff. There really appears to be people who think that they actually have these magical abilities. The, this video is uh, what it looks like the production of an Australian documentary looking at a chi master who who believes that he can toughen his skin and his tissues against a sword blow so that he could strike his arm with a sharp sword without cutting it. So he goes through all of his maneuvers. He goes through his breathing exercises and his martial arts maneuvers, which actually look quite impressive. He's obviously very skilled physically. And then you could see him like, you know, circling his arm and trying to, to you know, bolster its strength. Then he has a short sword that he says was especially sharpened for this TV demonstration. And then he hacks his arm with the sword and slices right down to the bone. And the, the blood appears, starts to drip down. The guy looks like he's in shock, yeah. both, both emotionally and physically in shock. They have to lay him down. They have to staunch the bleeding. Just to add a little more realism to it, right before he does it, he goes over and cuts a freaking sapling tree down with it you know maybe yeah. a tree that was like three inches thick i mean literally 
three shots, three pieces of wood go flying. This knife is yeah. sharp. That was a real sharp short sword. It really was. Of course, he's you know mortified. Everyone on the show looked embarrassed by what happened. You know, like, uh, what should we do now? The guy just cut into his arm. But, it, but the 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 host tried to save tried to save things. He said that he really this guy really believed that he could do this. Yep. I mean, he and you look at the video. He he does. He oh, without yeah. hesitation he slices into his arm, and he's genuinely surprised at at the blood that starts gushing out. So he said he believed he could do it. Therefore, he must really have this power, which was just a really nice, juicy post hoc rationalization. So what he's basically saying is, if he successfully did this demonstration, that proves he has the power. And if he failed at the demonstration, that also proves he must have the power because mm-hmm. he never would have attempted it if he didn't really have it. Oh, you see how they're tricky like that? Oh yeah, <laughs> they're, they're very tricksy. They are so <laughs> tricksy. What I what what, is, what I suspect is that this guy has, in previous attempts at this demonstration, used a much duller sword, and he said he sharpened this especially for this demonstration. Uh-oh. So I, perhaps the guy really does believe that he could do it. I, I accept that. Oh, think, undoubtedly, you know, Steve. Come on. I think he believed it. I don't think you could cut into your arm that way. I just, think he still. Why would he do it? it? Yeah, I think he still believes it, despite the cut. Yeah, well, he oh yeah, he rationalized and said, "Yeah, I felt that it was taking too long to get into my special state." I mean, yeah. so he was throwing out the rationalizations too. This is a good example of why it's dangerous to believe in magic. The power of stupidity. Yeah, yeah, Steve, incredible. Just out of curiosity, from a doctor's perspective, you know, he cut his forearm palm up. What what did he cut into there? What's on that side of your arm? Well, the the whole arm, really, there's there's two bones in the middle, and all around are just muscles and tendons. But aren't most of your tendons on the top of your arm, the top of your forearm? No, they're they're superficial and deep. So he cut and through tendons, he cut through veins. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see any spurting, so he probably didn't hit an artery. Lucky for him. There's something parallel here to this, and the the not knowing the Earth is round hubbub. Did this guy afterwards, <laughs> did he like, call up his friend and be like, you know, maybe should I not do that with knives anymore? Like, is this dumb? <laughs> should I not slice my arm with a sharp <laughs> short sword? Yeah, like, again, I, I think that he did not learn the lesson from this demonstration because he was already into the rationalization mode afterwards. But not, will not he do saying, it again? Hmm, maybe this doesn't work. Will this guy take a knife to his forearm again? Only if it's dull. Yeah, maybe not a sharp one. Maybe the whole sharpening bit was not a good yeah. idea. In, in the comments of this blog, there is a link to another video. This one is of a Kai master who is like the master of a dojo, and, and he's surrounded by his students, and his students are coming at him, and he's you know waving his hands at them, like you know, gesture, doing martial arts gestures at them without ever laying a finger on them, and they're yeah. acting as if they're getting hit and punched and kicked. Yeah, like, like Obi-Wan Kenobi using the force to push robots away. Right, so they're just falling down they're falling at his feet and getting blown back and he's not even touching them. Of course the skeptical view is well the students are are behaving in the way they think that their master wants them to behave. Of course the question is does does the master really think that he's you know magically throwing these people away and without touching them. So is there somewhat of a mutual delusion going on. <laughs> Steve, if I met this guy, you know what I would say to him? 
Your kung fu is lousy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. It, yeah. This this whole thing, this whole thing is obvious. It's obvious that the students are buying into this guy's yes. charisma. Right. You know, and, but seen, they're convincing him in doing that. They're convincing him that his power is real. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure there there are some that aren't 100% sure. You know, it's kind of like the whole like faith healer knocking people yeah. over, you know. Yeah, you're doing it cuz everyone else is doing right it. You now, don't want right to be now. the odd man out, and you don't want to embarrass your master by not collapsing like everyone else is doing. Yeah. And they Why did his master they, agree to engage in this real fight with this real other person? There you go. So he, he says he put out a challenge, a $5,000 challenge to anyone to fight him, anyone, even professional fighters. And an MMA or mixed martial arts fighter took him up on it. He said, sure, I'll fight you. So this guy's like a real martial artist who, who as, as the, the commenter put, hadn't drunk the dojo Kool-Aid. <laughs> this guy was not going to just lay down for this guy. And they get in the ring... And the MMA fighter kicks the crap out of this old guy. I mean, it's really. It's I know again, I shouldn't it's, laugh at that, but I just can't. Help it's it. sad. They come out, and the guy who believes in magic is like white, waving his hands at the fighter, and the fighter just punches him in the face and knocks him down. Huh. I mean, it's, it's it sad. is sad. It's, it's sad. It's like let's say you got magic on one side and fighting ability on the other side. <laughs> Who's gonna win? Well, I have defeated you. <laughs> <laughs> but not my spirit. Okay, so it, th- you know, I always have to do this because I have to. There's always a story behind all this. Okay, so that guy, he's there. He's got himself so self deluded that he is. He gets in the ring with someone. What the guy was younger than him, bigger than him. Did, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. and yep. he's like, I'm going to use my magic to prevent this guy from getting near me, and then I'll I'll do like the Hyrukin thing from. Uh, from Street Fighter and throw a magic energy ball right up this guy's ass and this guy comes mm-hmm. in and just plows right over him. Right. Did that guy, the guy who got his ass handed to him, do you think he went home and called his friend and said, is my magic full of shit or what? <laughs> I, I'm sure he said that whatever, the entrails weren't favorable, the, his key wasn't aligned that day, he had some raw sushi, who knows? I'm If... If history is any judge, he had some rationalization for why his powers were not aligned that day. Steve, I figured it out. None of these people have anyone that truly loves them. They don't have the reality check person in their they life. They don't have the ego police. They don't have phones to call their friends. Apparently. Honey, you don't have magical powers. <laughs> well, yes, I do. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. You don't. <laughs> you yes, don't. I do. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're, I just cut your leg off. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What are you going to do, bleed on me? It's, it really is. It's that, it's that ridiculous that it's it's Monty Python comical. In a it way. is. In a way. It is. It is. But we're going to end with a little bit of serious news. Um, there's a couple of uh, vaccine news items in the last week. The first one, very quickly... I had spoken before about the fact that there is an effort to eradicate polio from the world by vaccinating everyone with the polio vaccine. But it's hit a couple of speed bumps. In northern Nigeria, a few years ago, there were rumors propagated by the northern Nigerian local government and the local religious leaders that the polio vaccine was being spiked with AIDS, with HIV, with infertility drugs, and with cancer-causing agents. So compliance plummeted, the vaccination rates plummeted, and there was 
surprise, surprise, an outbreak of polio. It even spread to neighboring regions. And then finally, you know, after like a year, I mean, finally, the, from pressure from outside, from the federal government, the local government finally relented and the, and the program got back on track and rates are finally starting to come back down to, to, the, to the pre-scare levels. Now they have discovered that there's an, another outbreak of polio in northern Nigeria. And this outbreak is with the, the vaccine-derived virus. So the virus that... You, that there's one virus. There's actually three polio viruses. One strain is only in the vaccine. doesn't exist in the wild anymore. And then there are two strains that are in the wild. And the, this is an outbreak with the vaccine-only strain of virus. This can happen because in poor parts of the world, the cheaper live vaccine is what's used. And, it, you know, one in a million, very small chance you can actually get polio from the vaccine. Although it doesn't usually spread because everyone else is vaccinated. Well, what happened here is that a couple of people had a low-grade infection from the vaccine-derived polio virus, and because there was a large unpo- unvaccinated population, it was, a, it, it was possible for the virus to spread and mutate and become more virulent, uh, and it actually caused an outbreak. So now we're just like waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're waiting for the, uh, the backlash, the local backlash, saying, see, the, the vaccine's actually causing polio. Um, in fact, it was not getting vaccinated, which caused this outbreak, not, not the vaccine itself. If, if everyone's vaccinated, these, these uh, rare cases remain totally isolated. So a very sad chapter. You know, we're, we're just, you know, paranoia, conspiracy theories, anti-Western sentiments being propagated by religious and political leaders in this poor part of the world are causing these, cause both of these polio outbreaks. The other news is is a bit of good news. There was just published in the New England Journal of Medicine a study looking at the exposure to thimerosal, which is a mercury-containing preservative in in some vaccines, the exposure to thimerosal in children and neurological outcomes over the next 7 to 10 years. It's a very large study. You know, conducted by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and it showed that there was essentially no correlation with negative or bad neuropsych- neuropsychological outcomes. Why'd you say essentially, Steve? I'll get there. And exposure to thimerosal. Now, I said essentially because there's a, there's another there's a wrinkle to this story. Now, there there are those people out there who think that thimerosal is the cause, and mercury in general is the cause of autism. It's been pretty much disproven. The data is soundly negative. There is no association between autism and mercury or thimerosal. So just scientifically, the notion is dead. It's been disproved. All the evidence is against it. But there's a true believers who just will not accept the fact that vaccines and, and thimerosal are not the cause of autism. So this study was largely done to placate them and just as more added reassurance that that these vaccines are safe. In fact, one of the outspoken, you know, mercury causes autism people called uh, Sally Bernard was consulted on this study and was part of the design and execution of this study. She dropped out and took re- had her name removed from the final publication after she found out that the results were negative. Wow. That's just despicable. You don't get to do that in science. You know, if you do a consensus study, if you're involved with the design and execution, you're signing off on the results. You don't get to peek at the results and go, oop, that's not, that's not the results that I like. I now withdraw my support for the study. 
But the study outcomes were actually take a little bit of basic you know, statistics to interpret. There were, there were actually many, many, many outcomes that were measured. There were 42 different neuropsychological abilities that were looked at with hundreds of measurements. And you know, if you're going to look at hundreds of specific measurements and you're going to use a 0.05 p-value, which means you look at 200 variables, 10 of them are going to, are going to be outside, are going to be deviate, there's going to be some positive or negative correlation with it, with a statistical significance. So that's exactly what the study found. There was a random distribution of measurements, uh, just as many beneficial as harmful. In other words, the people, some of the kids who were exposed to more thimerosal actually had improved neuropsychological measures in some scores, and they had uh, decreased in other scores, but it all averaged out. It all came out in the wash, and therefore this is a negative study. But what the Mercury True Believers have done is they've cherry-picked the positive ones, the, the ones where thimerosal correlates with a bad outcome, let's say. And they completely dismiss the ones where it was associated with an improvement in neuropsychological function. And they say, see, this, you know, that the CDC is lying. They're saying that this, this study shows that thimerosal is safe when, when it's showing that thimerosal is not safe and it's correlated with all these negative outcomes. They're completely misinterpreting the study completely, which just goes to show you that the, you know, the purpose of this study was to placate the true believers, and you know, those of us who have been following this for years predicted that it's pointless to do this. No matter, no matter how good a study you do, no matter what it shows, you're never going to convince them because they're going to pull these kinds of shenanigans. That's exactly what, what, what they're doing. Well, there's ego attached to it, too. I mean, it's, you have to admit that you were wrong longer and longer and longer, and it goes deeper and deeper down. Rabbit hole. Yeah, it becomes harder and harder to admit that you were wrong. Although that's why, and I, when I wrote about this in my blog, I mentioned that the way out of that is just to say, my opinions are dependent upon the existing evidence. I could be wrong. If new evidence comes out, I'll happily change my opinion to correspond to the new evidence. Well, that sounds like a skeptical point of view. Yeah, as long as you take that approach, you never get the aha, you were wrong. You know, you could really only be embarrassed by being wrong if you stick to your guns despite the evidence. So that's the hole they're digging themselves into. And they keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper. The the outcome of the study confirms no correlation between thimerosal and any negative neurological outcomes. That's a good thing. And there's a, they, But the study did not look specifically at autism, but there is another study underway that is looking at autism. Those results will come out next year. I predict they're going to be negative, and I predict that the Mercury Militia will just completely distort the findings or just cry foul, cry conspiracy, and it's not going to end the controversy as far as they're concerned. No evidence will. Well, let's move on to your questions and emails. The first question comes from Mike Kolodowski from Texas, and Mike writes, As a heavy laptop user, the following article linked on Dig piqued my interest, and I am curious as to the validity. The article gives no citation, and the mere fact that the website features a section on free energy, which includes perpetual motion machines, makes it all suspect to me. What is your take and is a long-lasting battery like this out of the realm of possibility? Thanks, Mike. Well, have you guys seen this, by the way? This is a, uh, the battery that supposedly lasts for 30 years, which is quite a claim. Um, it certainly would be nice to have a battery in the laptop that would last for 30 years. You wouldn't have to plug it in or recharge it or anything. Right. You know, it, that sounds like an extraordinary claim, so you want to look, look carefully at what they're saying. 
they're saying this is a, a beta voltaic cell, that it uses the beta decay of tritium, uh, which is a molecule comprised of three hydrogen atoms, and then uses those beta particles just like a solar panel would use a photon of sunlight. The, it uses a, a material that will generate an electrical current in response to the beta particles as the beta particle hits that layer, and that that's what's generating the electricity. There's no problem with that as a concept. These sort of beta voltaic cells have actually existed for a long time. NASA uses them in their you know, deep space probe. Many of them have nuclear-powered batteries. But technically, technologically, there are a lot of problems with the claims that are being made for this 30-year-old laptop battery. One problem is that, although they're saying that it's totally non-toxic, they also say, which is confusing, that it is non-nuclear or does not use radioactive material, which, of course, is inconsistent with the notion that you're having a material which is decaying, which is having radioactive decay. I think what they mean by that is that they're not using like uh, the kind of radioactive material you would find in a nuclear plant, power plant, or in a, in a nuclear bomb. That's true. Plutonium. Yeah, there's no plutonium or uranium in these things. But they do use tritium, which is radioactive. It is also true that when it completely exhausts itself, you, you have you know, water and, or just hydrogen and in, in, inert materials left. But un, until it's completely decayed, if the battery cracks open, you have a radioactive material would leak out. You know? So it's not as safe as they're saying. Also, the numbers aren't very favorable. The conversion efficiency is only about 25%, meaning only about 25% of the energy generates electricity. The other 75% generates heat. That's one hot laptop battery. <laughs> Don't put it in your lap. <laughs> yeah. So that, there are probably some practical limitations to that. And also, because of this high inefficiency, both of this particular you know, form of beta voltaic cell and just the, the technology in general, the battery would need to weigh about 72 times what a conventional, like, lithium-ion laptop battery Oh, that's weighs. useful. Oops. Yeah. So you're, you'd be lugging around a 50-pound laptop, you know, with this battery in there. Kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. So there are, some, there are some technological hurdles that have not been overcome by this. So not impossible, but not yet ready for prime time. One thing that you know, uh, I always find that people forget or they just don't realize is you know, E equals mc squared, it, it, you know, Einstein's famous formula, energy equals matter times the speed of light squared, holds true no matter what the form of energy is or no matter what the form of mass is. You know, all mass and all energy, you know, obeys that equation. So if you have a tremendous amount of energy stored in some medium like a battery, that has to translate to mass, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. So if you have a 30-year power supply, there's no way around the fact that it's going to be massively heavy. You just can't get around it. The only thing that really determines how much mass uh, is, well, obviously how much energy, but also it's how efficient it is. You, you'd like to be 100% efficient, so you get all of the mass that you're carrying around is going to ultimately be turned into useful energy, not wasted as heat energy or, or lost in the process. So that's where efficiency is, is critically important. It's a strange thing to think that heat and electricity have an inherent weight to them. Yeah, 
but it does. But you know, but th- th- this I don't think that we're going to be having this in laptops anytime soon. But this doesn't mean that there are that this as this technology evolves that there aren't going to be interesting applications to it. There are there there are already applications in like satellites, and we'll see it also in if you need to power a device for a period of time in a remote, inaccessible, or hazardous location, like a deep sea remote submarine or things like that. You know, maybe some military applications. Yeah, I think yeah, these these kind of technologies will find a use, just not in the home, in the laptop. Not anytime soon, anyway. Uh, the next email comes from Fernanda Abdallah from Brazil. And Fernanda writes, uh, I've been meaning to see an endocrinologist, and I ran across what is, to me, a new field, orthomolecular medicine. I looked into it some, but the little information I could find was ambiguous and seemed somewhat fishy to me. I was wondering if you had any additional info and could shed some light on the matter. Thanks a lot, Fernanda. For those who may not remember, Fernanda actually uh, was interviewed on our show when we were doing the, the Perry uh, retrospective. And she's uh, been, on, been a frequent visitor of both the chat room and the, uh, the forums for quite some time. So Fernanda and us are old friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hey, Fernando. Hey, Fernando. <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. Orthomolecular medicine... It's crap! The, the short of it is that, yeah, it's, it's not a scientifically accepted or valid you know, approach to medicine. It, it, this, the term orthomolecular was coined by Linus Pauling, who was an early supporter of this notion. If, if you recall, after he, he won a couple of Nobel Prizes in chemistry... Uh, in his, his later life, he decided that he was smart enough to be a clinician without ever having any formal training in, in clinical decision-making or thinking, and unfortunately made some horrendously bad calls, um, like that vitamin C can cure just about anything. So this comes out of a lot of you know, Linus Pauling's work and, uh, and others, and the philosophy here is that health is primarily a function of having an optimal amount of nutrients and micronutrients and and other constituents in the body. For and, and there's a lot of individuality to this. So for any individual, there's this perfect amount of different kinds of amino acids and all the different kinds of vitamins and different kinds of minerals that, that's optimal for you. And you can cure just about anything as long as you have an optimal amount of these nutrients in your body. It's really a flawed notion that hasn't been borne out by the research. The, their primary interventions, therefore, are nutritional, and uh, they all sometimes advocate you know, so-called megadoses of vitamins. It, it is a good example of ideology trumping science. They have a philosophy, and they're going to stick to it regardless of the evidence. You can't reduce all of human disease and ailments to any one cause or any one type of cause. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong with the body. Uh, so any approach that says all diseases due to X is always wrong because it's just way too simplistic. Plus the notion that everyone has this sort of optimal, very narrow range of, uh, of nutrition that they require doesn't really flow from basic physiology. There appears to be a minimum amount of some stuff that we need, and certainly if you have a deficiency, then supplementation is helpful. And within that range, you know, to a certain degree, more may be better. But, you know, once you get an adequate amount, there is no evidence that having really high amounts is extra beneficial. 
In fact, it's harmful. Well, it may, it may be harmful. In high, you know, vitamins are toxic in high doses, many of them. Steve, you yeah. remember when we were kids? Our Uncle Bob was like really big into the mega dosing. Yeah, yeah, he was totally into this. Our yeah, crazy he, Uncle Bob. He totally <laughs> was all over this. I remember him like he he would come visit us, you know, every couple of years. He lived in California, he came out. I mean, he he had a suitcase just for the vitamins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. So this this gets filed under nutritional pseudoscience in my book. It, it it really goes far beyond the evidence. Not to say that there, there isn't a role for nutrition, of course, in, in medicine and in health, but you know we have to look very carefully at every specific individual claim. And this, you know, the the proponents of orthomolecular medicine just go far, far beyond that to the point where they, some of them at the fringe, will claim you could treat cancer with vitamin C. No, I'm sorry, there's just no evidence for that. So I would stay far and away from any practitioner who is pushing orthomolecular medicine, in my opinion. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say, you just end up with expensive urine. Yeah, that's part of it, is that, yeah, your body's not going to process a lot of the like, water-soluble stuff. Well, we have a very interesting interview coming up, so let's go to the interview now. Joining us now is John Blumenfeld. John, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. So for a bit of history, John was actually the Connecticut chapter chairman of the New England Skeptical Society for several years and did a, did a fine job running our Connecticut chapter and uh, wrote many great articles for the New England Journal of Skepticism and, and ran our meetings and then... Uh, Ultimately, life intervened. You had this job thing you had to do. Or yeah, reality right? kind of uh, descended on me. Yeah, right, right. Now you're trying to get back into the swing of things. So, as we mentioned last week, and as many of you probably have already seen, we started a new blog called the SGU blog. Uh, with there'll be with one entry per week and seven different authors. And John has gotten his feet back into skepticism by writing uh, one blog entry per week. And your day is Thursday, right? That's right. So I'll have a, a, an entry tomorrow morning, which is already loaded up and ready to go. It's good to have you back, John. Thank you. It's good to be back. What have you been doing with yourself for the past few years without the wonderful world of skepticism? Well, I haven't really completely disappeared from the wonderful world of skepticism. I mean, I've, I've kept up with you know, the books that come out, the articles that get written, Skeptical Inquirer, Skeptic Magazine. Uh, I've listened to the... Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. Um, I hear that podcast is pretty good. I, I've kept my ear to the skeptical world, as it were, without actually um, you know, being active. But I really have gotten the urge to get back, uh, to get back in, as I explained in my first blog entry. And uh, I'm, very, uh, I'm very happy to be doing this. I mean, this is, this is something I really love to do. I just decided it was time to stop waiting for an opportunity and go ahead and get in there. And just seize the day. Seize the day. How do you say that in Latin? <laughs> Carpe something. Carpe something, yeah. So, John, you, back in the day, you gave the, our local chapter a wonderful lecture, what I thought was a, a really informative lecture on Isaac Newton, a very enigmatic figure in the history of science, a name that, that crops up uh, from time to time both on our podcast and has been the subject of quite a lively discussion on our message boards. And I thought you had a lot of really... Uh, keen insights into what this man was all about. So can you start by just giving us an overview of Isaac Newton's career and what, what he 
what his overarching philosophy was? Well, Newton, um, you know, had a, a, an amazing career and lived at a time when the scientific revolution was really just beginning. You know, to talk about Newton, you kind of have to go back and talk about probably Copernicus first, who who you know took the Earth away from being at the center of the universe, said the Earth goes around the sun. Then you go from Copernicus to uh, Tycho Brahe and Kepler, who did observations of uh, celestial objects, and Kepler was the first person to try to put laws on the on the way those planets moved. And then you know from Kepler you go to Galileo. And from Galileo to Newton. In fact, there, the story is that you know, just as Galileo was dying in 1642, uh, Newton was being born. Now, that's not quite quite true. Uh, Newton was born Christmas Day, 1642. But of course, because the English um, had not changed the calendar uh, from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar, it was actually 1643 everywhere else. But it was still mm-hmm. 1642 in England. Um, and Galileo, uh, excuse me, Newton was born into a uh, fairly well-off family. You know, he was uh, brilliant from early days, uh, went to Cambridge. Actually, in 1665, the plague arrived in Cambridge. They sent all the students home, and Newton had what they call the Annus Mirabilis, two years in which he invented calculus, um, began the discovery of his famous three laws of motion, the, the binomial expansion. I mean, just... Thing after thing after thing came out at the age of about 23 or 24. Then, you know, back to Cambridge, um, he eventually uh, became the Lucasian professor of mathematics at Cambridge. And probably the most famous holder of that chair is the one who's got it right now, Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. Although Luke, uh, 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 Newton only had it for three years. Uh, other famous Lucasians, Charles Babbage, Paul Dirac, and of course, uh, Professor Data. Uh, out in the 24th century, right, right, eventually becoming the Lucasian professor. But um, and then he wrote um, this fabulous book, the Principia Mathematica, uh, which was really the the, uh, the codification of all of his laws of motion, all, all of the mechanics, really celestial mechanics invented by Newton. And then later on, a book on optics. Um, he really never stopped. He he, he was uh, tireless by all accounts. I mean, almost to the point where I've heard speculation that he was either manic or had, you know, some kind of uh, almost a disorder where he would just work incessantly. It's very possible because he also had a few notable breakdowns. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of people ascribe his breakdowns to mercury poisoning, but they don't really seem to have the uh, characteristics of mercury poisoning. And in fact, although he probably had a lot of mercury in his system, he probably didn't die from mercury poisoning either. And he lived to be 83 years old, which, you know, in the... the, uh, 16, 1640s to 1720s was, was fairly rare. Yeah. Uh, and he was pretty lucid right up until the end. I mean, he began to forget things, but, but boy, I mean, he, was, he, he had a lot to forget. So he, he, was, he was pretty lucid right up until the end. So he probably did not die of mercury poisoning. Where would he have picked up the mercury? from? The well, this is the thing. Here is the thing about, about Newton. You know, he went from being this hero of science, this inventor of science that we all thought of him as, to he kind of got a little bit tarnished because people started to realize that uh, one of his great pursuits was alchemy. Mm-hmm. And alchemy used mercury. Mercury was a very interesting subject of study for alchemists. And uh, Newton worked with it continuously for, you know, 50 years. But I do want to talk about the alchemy because I think that's what is interesting to people is that Newton's reputation kind of got a little tarnished by this by this alchemy that he wrote in his lifetime, about a million words about alchemy, 
uh, and was doing all of these experiments. Now, first of all, there's there's what people think of alchemy as being, you know, the transmutation of gold or finding the elixir of life that will give you eternal life. That was really not what Newton was concentrating on. Newton's mm-hmm. alchemy was he was really trying to discover what he called the vegetative principle, uh, not about vegetables, but it was about what made things happen. When he looked at celestial mechanics, not to downplay it, but he said, you know, that stuff is just how things move. It's like, it's like mm-hmm. looking at a watch. But what I want to know is why is the watch moving? What is, making, what is it that makes when you eat something, what is it makes, that makes the stuff that you eat turn into you? What is it that makes you know, grain turn into beer? How do things change into each other? And he thought that there was a force, that there was a, a principle that did that. And that, to him, was the key that, that he was trying to discover. He was trying to really discover, in his view, he was trying to discover the mind of God. Um, Newton believed that the purpose of human beings on Earth was to discover the mind of God, to discover the workings of the universe, and to, so, to facilitate the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. And so this was his project. It was not about trying to turn things into gold or, or live forever. It was about trying to complete God's project that he had made in, in creating the world. And Newton was very religious. Uh, some, he was accused in his lifetime of being a deist, but that's probably not uh, how I would describe him. A deist is someone who believes that God set the universe in motion at the beginning and just let it go at that point and right. did not intervene again. Did he ever make any headway with his, with his experiments with the alchemy? Yeah, did he ever discover any actual chemistry, or was it all a dead end? No, he did discover plenty of chemistry. You know, and, and he also, it also informed his view of how, uh, for instance, how gravity might operate. Um, at first, he was very skeptical of action at a distance, very much like Einstein. He didn't like that spooky action at a distance, as Einstein later called it. And he tried to figure out a, a, a way that there could be a particle or some kind mm-hmm. of a flexion between objects that would account for gravity. Um, eventually, he had to give that up. Oh, but he did discover a lot about the properties of various chemicals. He invented thermometers, um, you know, a lot of things about the melting points and, and, and uh, liquid points and, and, yeah. and, and things of various uh, elements. Yeah, um, one interesting point is that despite the fact that um, he may have had some kooky metaphysics that he was operating under, his methodology seemed quite sound. So he was able to actually figure out stuff, even though he might have been operating underneath a, a metaphysical umbrella that was flawed. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, to me, looking at not just Newton, but all those other people that I mentioned before, Copernicus, Kepler, uh, you know, Galileo, Leibniz, Haley, Christian Huygens, who were all, those were uh, contemporaries of Newton's, they really developed something very, very new, which was this concept of empiricism. And it wasn't just that they had to develop it from nothing. What they really had to do was develop it from exactly the opposite viewpoint. You know, Aristotle, who was brilliant, dominated Western thought for hundreds of years, ever since he was rediscovered. Um, and Aristotle's view and Plato's view, which is where Aristotle got his, his viewpoint from, was that there was an ideal world, and then there was the world we live in. And the world we live in is imperfect, and is not a a good reference point for ideas. So the the, the idea of having an, a having a, a a concept and testing it to Aristotle 
This was not something that you would do because the, the, the world of our senses is imperfect. The classic thing is a joke about Aristotle that he got the number of teeth in the human mouth wrong because he just mm-hmm. didn't bother to check. Somebody said, well, you know, if he had only counted the number of teeth in Mrs. Aristotle's mouth, he would have known that he was wrong. But really, right, if you think right. about it, if Aristotle had lined up 20 contemporaries and counted all their teeth, how many of them would have had all of their teeth? How many teeth would he then say that a human person had? I mean, you know, right. back then, people didn't have all their teeth. So, you know, they really were living in a flawed world, and Aristotle and Plato believed that the ideal world of thought was the perfect world, and that was where all ideas should come from. They were going to be better than anything you found in the real world. So Copernicus, Kepler, those guys, and particularly Francis Bacon, were the first people to say, you know what, there is nothing else we can do but check our ideas against the real world. We have to check our ideas against the real world. Mm-hmm. So this was a 180-degree turn to the philosophy that that had dominated what there was of science for as long as there had been science. Right. And so they collectively kind of came up with the concept of objective reality. Then. In a way, they did. I mean, I, you know, I think maybe some of them were afraid to say that because there was still it was still actually part of Christianity that you know this idea of a perfect world that was decaying into into the world we live in. Um, and I think even, you know, Newton didn't reject that idea. In fact, he believed that there was a lot of wisdom in the, you know, a lot of ancient wisdom. This is where a lot of alchemy came from, was that there were these ancient philosophers who knew something that had been lost, and that one of the things that Newton and his contemporaries were trying to do was rediscover that lost knowledge. Um, people like Nicholas Flamel, for you Harry Potter fans out there. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas Flamel was a real person who was an alchemist, and he was one of the alchemists that Newton uh, believed really had something, really had some uh, ancient, revealed, but lost wisdom. Now, you, you mentioned before that, that Newton's experiments in alchemy cost him his reputation. Are you saying that to his contemporaries, even at, at his own time, his alchemy was looked at as something kooky and unconventional, or is that just in the hindsight of modern science? Actually, it's in the hindsight of modern science, because at the time, uh, first of all, I don't think that they were making the kind of separation that we make um, you know, between alchemy and real science. But the other thing was that alchemy was a secret, and it wasn't a secret because they were afraid. It was a secret because this was the important stuff, and they were only going to share it with people who were also in the know. It was kind of a a little bit of a Freemasonry of alchemy where Newton was very careful to keep that stuff secret and he thought it was more important than the the mechanical stuff that he was doing. Yeah, so the tradition of transparency of science didn't really exist yet. And that kind of goes along with the notion that Newton actually was very concealed and, and was very cryptic about calculus and and he deliberately made it hard, his calculus hard to understand, and that's why we use Leibniz's nomenclature and system of calculus because Leibniz made it understandable and transparent. So that kind of goes along with what you're saying. Yeah, and there was a tremendous, by the way, tremendous priority battle between Leibniz and uh, and Newton. I mean, you know, everybody was taking sides. Uh, people think that the cause of British science was set back a long way because after that, uh, British scientists were very reluctant to cooperate with their peers on the continent. But for a long time, uh, in the uh, early 1700s, there was a huge battle raging about priority between Leibniz and Newton, and it wasn't the first time. Newton, Newton was very jealously protective of his credit. Um, mm-hmm. The inverse square law was something also, also that uh, Robert Hooke tried to take credit for. Uh, and and Hooke has no case. Leibniz probably did invent calculus alongside Newton. 
and it's one of the few defeats really in Newton's life is that we now use we now use Leibniz's notation rather than right. Newton's. John, do you have a, a handle on what his base personality was? Um, in, in a lot of ways, he was uh, a bastard. <laughs> he was not a nice guy. That's the um, reputation, yeah. The the example uh, that a lot of people point to is the uh, longitude contest. Uh, if you've ever read that book by uh, Davis Sobel about longitude, um, he struggled very, very hard against the idea that a clock could be used to measure longitude. And he made the lives of... I can't remember the guy's name. Was it Hutchinson, uh, who invented these these incredibly accurate clocks? Uh, he made it very difficult for him to collect the prize that uh, that the Royal Society had put out, and and it seemed like it. You know, after a while, it was just spite, mm-hmm. and anyone who slighted him, he he was going to hit right back. And uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, there is a lot of evidence that he helped. He had a lot of relatives who were not as financially well off as he was. He was actually quite wealthy, and he did help out a lot of his relatives financially repeatedly over and over and over again so uh you know there was a side to him that at least you know when people were in need he would help them uh but when it came down to anything intellectual or uh, or anything involving credit for his discoveries he was a fighter and a nasty one uh, is are the rumors true that he died a virgin probably Do you know that offhand you know i obviously don't know <laughs> Uh, have you read about that, or, or yeah, you don't know? Yeah, yeah, he did not have very many relationships with women uh, at he, all. Did he have a wife? He never had a wife. He had and no f- kids, honestly. Hmm? No kids, uh, no wife. There is just the faintest rumbling that he may have had a few gentleman friends, but mm-hmm. ah. that there's no documentation of. There is no writing of Newton. All we know is he had some close relationships, particularly with a guy named uh, Fatio de Dullier, uh, a Swiss mathematician. We know that Fatio and Newton were very close for a few years. Uh, we know that when that relationship ended, for whatever reason, it was devastating to both of them. And then mm-hmm. Fatio kind of disappears from the records. Um, you know, so there's no evidence that anything physical ever happened, but there's always been that sort of just a hint of a whisper about that. But as far as women, nothing. No wonder why he was such a bastard. Yeah, and why he was able to like work all the time. He was sublimating all that all that energy into. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And and he was a tireless worker. I mean, just just constant. The 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 title of the of the biography, which if you're really interested in Newton, I recommend. It's Never at Rest by Richard Westfall. Uh, it's a fabulous biography. It's really got a, a, a enormous amount of uh, of great information on Newton. If he was alive today, he'd be an online gamer. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> he'd be designing online games. I mean, he wouldn't have time for those games. <laughs> Do you have any favorite quotes from Newton? Well, of course, there's the one that uh, that Jay had last week, which I, I actually bookmarked. I'm gonna, I like it so much that I'm going to, uh, to repeat it. He said, I, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself and now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Does that strike you as false humility, given what you know about Newton, or do you think that he was sincere in his uh, humility before the unknown? I, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that he was not a humble man. He believed that, um, for example, he believed that the Bible was full of inaccuracies. And the reason why the Bible was full of inaccuracies was so that the common clay type people could understand it and follow it. Mm-hmm. But for the elite, for the smart people like Newton, 
there was a real truth to be discovered that was not in the Bible. He basically uh, believed mostly that the prophecies were true and the book of Revelations mm-hmm. and pretty much all the rest of it he thought was, was man-made. But, you know, he thought that the Newtons of the world were entitled to something extra because they were so smart. So, yeah, I think I see uh, a certain amount of him, uh, a little bit of false humility. You know, it, it almost sounds like a quote that he put out there at the age of about 81 or 82 so that people like us would read it later and go, wow, what a great quote. Yeah, right. <laughs> The other, the other quote that I had was the, uh, you know, hey, Leibniz, get your dirty German hands off the calculus before I come down there and get medieval on your ass. But, you know, I'm not sure he actually <laughs> said that. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the one thing I do want to get to, though, is, is we want to kind of rehabilitate Newton. I think we kind, of got a, we, we kind of danced around it a little bit about, you know, what did he discover from alchemy? Did he get anywhere with it? And what, what's really amazing is that he was such an empiricist that he didn't believe anything that he couldn't get an experiment to confirm. And he was the kind of person, whenever he heard anyone's explanation for anything, he said, well, if that's true, then this other thing must be true. Let's go do an experiment and find out. And he was constantly doing that. And that was what he, that was, he took the same approach to alchemy. Newton was not going to take anybody's word for it. Even the ancient alchemists that he believed had some knowledge, he was going to do those experiments himself until he found something. And because Newton never really found anything, he never really was able to say, I know something here, I have discovered something, I know that there's something out there. He, always, he was always provisional. And really, mm-hmm. until he died, he never really made any claims about, we have, you know, we have discovered anything alchemically that we can be sure about this ancient knowledge. And I'm sure it was very disappointing for him. And to me... That rehabilitates Newton. That brings him back to the to the father of science that we always have said he was. That's a great point. You know, it's okay to be wrong, even profoundly wrong, but he was, at the end, he was intellectually honest, and he was not afraid to discard an idea that the evidence sh- said was not true. Absolutely. Well, John, this is a fan- fascinating interview. Thanks so much. I had a great time. And I'm glad to have you back within the skeptical fold. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to be back in the skeptical fold. <laughs> All right, John. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Later, thanks, John. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are genuine and one is fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics and my listeners at home to tell me which one is the fake. And here are the items for this week. Item number one, astronomers have discovered a brief extragalactic radio wave burst, so powerful it defies natural explanation, causing some leading astronomers to speculate that it may be of artificial origin. Item number two, researchers estimate that one human language goes extinct about every two weeks. And item number three, new fMRI study shows that doctors are less empathic toward their patient's pain than matched controls. Rebecca, go first. Okay, um, let's see. Less empathetic toward patient's pain. That sounds about right. Um, And one human language going extinct about every two weeks. Uh, Sadly, I can see that happening as well. I'm going to go with... The extragalactic radio wave burst as being fiction. Okay. Evan? I, I have to agree with Rebecca. I, I don't see how they can possibly... So powerful it defies natural explanation, 
causing some leading astronomers to speculate it might be of artificial origin. I don't see how they can make that jump if they can't explain it to make the jump it's artificial origin. I don't buy it. Fiction. Okay. Jay? Yeah, you know, I agree with Evan on that. I um, I was thinking the same exact thing. I, I First of all, I think we all would have heard about it causing some leading astronomers to speculate that it may be of artificial origin. Well, you know, but Evan, you know, of course they're speculating that. doesn't mean, well, you know, they could speculate that. Yeah, is it possible? But why that would they speculate that? I don't know. What, what would, what would le- possibly lead them in that direction? What do they have to base it on? Uh, it's a guess. Yeah, it, it is a guess. And, uh, but, it would ca- you know, causing some leading astronomers to speculate, uh, of course... But I don't know. That one does. That one grabs me. The second one about the languages going extinct every two weeks. I'm not aware of how many languages there are. I know there's tons and tons of dialects. I wouldn't say an entire language like French is going extinct. No, it's you know maybe dialects and stuff. Sure, I can see that. (laughs) And the fMRI study shows that doctors are less empathic towards their patients' pain than match controls. I can, you know, that's that's. I got to go with number one is the fake. The astronomer, the astronomer's radio wave burst. Okay, so fake. we seem to have a consensus this week. Let's take these in reverse order, since you all uh, agree on the same one. A new fMRI study shows that doctors are less empathic towards their patients' pain than matched controls. You all thought this one was science, and this one is science. Okay. Phew. Not surprising to me at all. Uh, although it, it, may, it may crawl, it may create the wrong idea. I chose my words very carefully. Uh, empathic means that you can feel someone else's pain, right? You actually, when they feel pain, you feel pain as well. It bothers you that they're feeling pain. That doesn't mean that you're not sympathetic. Or you don't care about the, the other person's uh, pain. The reason they speculated this might be the case is it is a common experience among physicians or anyone who has to do this, when you do procedures on a patient and, that, and the procedure involves you know, sticking a needle in them, for example, there's a, there's a natural inhibition against doing that. Then I had this experience, you know, I, I do a procedure that involves sticking needles into patients' muscles and, or doing lumbar puncture, sticking needles in their back. And you know, when I'm training students and residents to do it too, they go through the same thing. We just have this natural inhibition against like, directly inflicting pain and trauma on someone. And you have to learn to suppress that because if you don't, you're going to be tentative and you're actually going to cause much more pain. You're not going to do the procedure well if you're too you know, tentative about doing it. So you ha- actually have to learn to suppress that that normal instinct you have, that the emotional reaction you have against causing somebody else pain. That's exactly what they found in this study, that the part of the brain that gets activated, the emotional part of the brain that gets activated, sort of mirroring the, the other person's pain, was less active in the physicians, and rather the part of the brain that, that inhibits or suppresses emotion was more active. So that's reflecting exactly what the subjective experience is. You learn to suppress the emotions that are attached with causing someone else pain so you can be proficient at and do a procedure well. Um, So the fMRI study confirmed what I experienced and what physicians experienced. So I found this, you know, not surprising at all. So that's your excuse, Steve? Yeah. But it doesn't mean we don't care. The next item... Oh, boy. 
You guys ready for this? Yeah, come on. Oh Stick together, you guys. Yeah. Uh. Researchers estimate that one human language goes extinct about every two weeks yeah. is science. Yeah. Science. You all got Ooh. this one right. Ew. There are. I found that a little surprising. I thought that number was quite high. How many, yeah. how many identified languages do you think there are? I'll say that there's an estimate. How many, what are the number of estimated languages spoken by people in the world? Including 20, dialects, correct? Yeah, yeah, if they're, if they're distinct and recognizable. 20,000. Yeah, I would I would be like the twenty to, to fifty thousand range. Really, I was going to say in the hundreds of thousands. Seven thousand is the number that ah, they quote. Seven. seven. Wow, we totally over. Which is still a lot. A seven thousand is a lot. And of those seven thousand languages, about every two weeks, one goes extinct. Going extinct means that the last surviving person who can speak that language dies. There are, are there are efforts underway to. To save Recording. these languages that are on the, the verge of extinction by... Well, they better hurry up at yeah, this no, rate, you know? Yeah, you are, you're absolutely working against time. Well, you know, one problem is that a lot of the languages are purely verbal, and so there's no way, there's no written record of them to survive. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, no, there's no written component to it, although you can just phonetically transcribe them into some other written language or, or letter or alphabet. So there's a huge problem with that, though. When you're transcribing an oral language into a written language, you're losing, you know, so often you lose a lot of um, subtext, and it can yeah. be... Yeah, know, the nuances like, are gone. That's right. You, you know, have to... With, it, it may not be a one-for-one type of translation. There may be a lot of subtleties uh, that, right. that you'll have to document. There's no substitute for somebody who actually is fluent in the language. That's right. So, Steve, what do you think they're doing? Are they recording these people speaking it? I mean, you know, when you, when you say that we lose a language every two weeks, I mean, the people are dying. Yeah, from, from the people who speak them die. That's right. How do, they, how do they even begin to identify all these different dialects? And, you know, think about just the logistics of yeah. becoming aware that they exist and then tracking down that last person. I mean, wow, that's yeah, I mean, serious. I think that's why they really can only estimate the number of languages. And it is, it is interesting to think. I mean, in, in a thousand years, are we going to have one language? I mean, what, what's going to ultimately happen? Is, the, is human culture going to homogenize to the point where we're going to have one or maybe just a few languages? It's interesting. Maybe. Uh, this, the, the article quotes David Harrison, an assistant professor of linguistics at Swarthmore College. He, he said, When we lose a language, we lose centuries of human thinking about time, seasons, sea creatures, reindeer, edible flowers, mathematics, landscapes, myths, music, and the unknown and the everyday. So language is an important part of human culture. It is intimately tied with how we think. You know, language and thinking are 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 definitely um, part of the same process. You know, yeah. Which That's means cool. astronomers have discovered a brief extragalactic wave burst so powerful it defies natural explanation, causing some leading astronomers to speculate that it may be of artificial origin. Is indeed Bogus. fiction. I five, very me, nice. But something tells me some extragalactic radio wave burst was measured. That is correct. No, it's just right. Xenu farted. That's it, right? Mysterious energy burst stuns astronomers. Uh, this actually was a, a real event. They, they did discover a radio burst that was unusually strong, and they estimated it was about 1.5 billion light years away. The, the burst lasted just a fraction of a second, but, had, but contained a tremendous amount of energy. They said it was the equivalent to a large, like, 2,000 megawatt power station running for 2 billion billion years. 
That's how much power it had. Wow. Now, this wasn't like a gamma burst from a black hole. Well, it's, it's, they're actually, they're, they are, in fact, comparing it to a gamma burst, although this is a radio burst. Gamma bursts were discovered years ago, and we didn't know what caused them. They were really highly energetic and far away, and it turns out most of them are probably the result of the collapse of a very massive, rapidly rotating star into a black hole. Now, what, so this is what's cool about this. No one is saying that they can't be natural. That was the part I made up, and no one is saying that there are no, no, no prominent astronomers anyway. There are the usual cranks who are saying this, but that uh, this has to be artificial in origin, although that would be totally cool if they were. Uh, but there are things that can plausibly do this. Like some of this, the, the early speculation is that this is, these are some kind of exotic event, a collision of two neutron stars, the last gasp of a black hole as it evaporates, for example. So something like that is happening that's generating uh, this brief radio burst. They think that if they look around in every direction, that we should see multiple such bursts occurring every year. So we'll see. Now that we know these things exist, they're going to start looking for them, surveying yeah. the sky for them, and they think it could be an important new window on seeing you know, how the universe is put together and how it works. So like the gamma bursts, we'll probably learn something new about the universe from this uh, newly discovered phenomenon. That's great. So congratulations, everyone. You guys got this week's one correct. Yay, Thank finally. You. Well done. Well done. Now, Evan, last week you promised us a limerick. And I have fulfilled my promise because I'm about to deliver. Let's hear it. All right. For a feline and foul he is known. This styling for years he had grown. Auras foretold his seizures. In the meantime, his leisures would yield fame from these seeds he had sown. Excellent. So who am I limericking about? <laughs> so it's a person. So it's a person. So uh, good luck. That was a oh, limerick. And, yeah, I thought it was, was going to be limerick. more dirty too. I thought there was going to be like a. Well, it, it, you're right, and and traditional limericks it is supposed to be kind of more dirty and uh, you know more offensive, I guess, in a sense. So I did come up with a couple of alternate limericks. They're not puzzles, but I, I figured I'd share them here. I came up with three others. So if you'll uh, indulge me for a moment. There once was a fool named Geller, who was a strange sort of feller. He bent spoons with his hands. Randy busted his scams. Now his lousy career is in the cellar. <laughs> Very good. And then there's this one. There was once a jerk named Tom Cruise, through whose movies I would often snooze. He's nutty for aliens, and so are the Raelians. I hope Xenu attacks and they lose. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one, Evan. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good, so Evan. you you know what this this starts now? Of course. Oh yeah. Of course. We have to challenge yeah, got- our listeners <laughs> to send us similar skeptically themed limericks, either promoting some skeptical notion or person, or dissing some decidedly <laughs> unskeptical person. Well, can, can I throw out one more? Sure. Knock and knock yourself out. So- so I'm, I'm giving people four limericks for the price of one. I hope they realize the value they're getting here. Here we go. Kevin Trudeau, with his mouth, spreads his germs to a gullible public through all he affirms. He's evil to the core, but one thing I adore is one day he'll be feeding the worms. Thank you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, <laughs> so, Evan. 
Well, you enjoy. You did give us our money's worth. I mean, you made up for no puzzle last week by giving us four limericks. There you go. I know. Four for the price of one. That's a bargain anywhere. Now, yeah, li- yeah. listeners, the listeners out there, you know, we're serious. You've got to send us your skeptical limericks. Okay, you know what, in. Steve? Let's make it official then. We'll we'll read them and we'll read the best few on the air. We'll, we'll read yes, we'll read the top ones on the air and then we'll post them on the, our notes page, perhaps on the forum. But we'll definitely read the top, at least the top three or four on the air next. I'm looking for, I'm looking forward yeah. to that. Okay, so we want them we want them emailed to us then. Yeah, email them to us absolutely. Okay. Jay, yeah, I'm sure you have a stunning quote for us to close out the show. I do have a quote. I have a quote from Aristotle. I'm sure a lot of you know who he is, but I'll just quickly say Aristotle was a Greek philosopher, and he was a student of Plato, and he was alive uh, from 384 B.C. to 322 B.C. And he says, It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Aristotle. That's interesting coming from Aristotle, and ironic on the episode where we talked about Isaac Newton, Mm -hmm. who represented a very different philosophy of knowledge than Aristotle. I like the sentiment. There is a skeptical sentiment in there. Yeah, there is. I agree. Well, thank you, everyone, for another wonderful show. I really enjoyed it. Me too, Steve. Me too. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. 